Chapter Twenty Six of Marie Antoinette and the Downfall of Royalty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read for you by Chiquito Crasto. Marie Antoinette and the Downfall of Royalty by Imbert de Saint Amand. Translated by Elizabeth G. Martin. Chapter Twenty Six. The Prologue to the Tenth of August the first rumblings of the storm began people quarrelled and fought in the palais royal the cafes and the theatres half of the national guard sided with the court and the other half with the people two seditious speeches were added songs full of insults to the king and queen these songs sold on every corner applauded in every tavern and repeated by the wives and children of the people propagated revolutionary fury there was a constant succession of gatherings brawls and riots the assembly had declared the country in danger. Rumors of every sort excited popular imagination. It was said that priests who refused the oath were in hiding at the Tuileries, which was, moreover, full of arms and munitions. The Duke of Brunswick's manifesto exasperated national sentiment. It was read aloud in every street. The leaders neglected nothing likely to excite the populace, and prepared their last attack on the throne, their afterpiece of June 20th, with as much audacity as skill. In order to subdue the court, it was necessary to destroy its only remaining means of defence. To leave plenty of elbow room for the riot, the assembly on June 15th ordered the troops of the line to be sent some thirty-five miles beyond Paris and kept there. A singular means was devised for breaking up the choice troops of the National Guard, who were royalists. They were told that it was contrary to equality for certain citizens to be more brilliantly equipped than others that a bearskin cap humiliated those who were entitled only to a felt one, and that there was a something aristocratic about the name of grenadier, which was really intolerable to a simple foot-soldier. The choice troops were dissolved in consequence, and the grenadiers came to the assembly like good patriots to lay down their epaulets and bearskin caps and assume the red cap. On July 30th, the National Guard was reconstructed by taking in all the vagabonds and bandits that the clubs could muster. The famous Federates of Marseilles, who were to take such an active part in the coming insurrection, arrived in Paris the same day. The Girondins, having failed to obtain their camp of 20,000 men before Paris, had devised instead of it a reunion of Federate volunteers summoned from every part of France. The roads were at once thronged by future rioters, whom the assembly allowed 30 cents a day. The Jacobins of Brest and Marseilles distinguished themselves, Instead of a handful of volunteers, they sent two battalions. That of Marseilles, recruited by Babaru, comprised five hundred men and two pieces of artillery. Starting July 5th, it entered Paris, July 30th. Excited to fanaticism by the sun and the declamations of the southern clubs, it had run over France, been received under triumphal arches, and chanted in a sort of frenzy the terrible stanzas of Rouget de Lille's new hymn, Le Marseillaise. It was at this time that Blanc-Gilly, deputy from the Bouche-du-Rhône department to the Legislative Assembly, wrote, These pretended Marseillais are the scum of the jails of Genoa, Piedmont, Sicily, and all of Italy, Spain, the archipelago, and Barbary. I run across them every day. Rouget de Lille received from his old mother, a royalist and Catholic at heart, a letter in which she said, What is this revolutionary hymn which a horde of brigands are singing as they pass through France, and in which your name is mixed up. At Paris, the accents of that terrible melody sounded like strokes of the tocsin. The men who sang it filled the conservatives with terror. 
they wore woolen cockades and insulted as aristocrats those who wore silk ones there was no longer any dyke to the torrent august first louis the sixteenth nominated a cabinet composed of loyal men joly was minister of justice champion de villeneuve of the interior bigot de saint croix of foreign affairs dubouchage of the marine le Roux de la vie of public taxes and d'avancourt of war but this ministry was to last only ten days certain petitioners at the bar of the assembly asked for the deposition of the king in the most violent language this measure says Barbaroux in his memoirs would have carried philippe of orleans to the regency and therefore his party violently clamoured for it his creditors his hirelings and born companions marat and his cordeliers all manner of swindlers and insolvent debtors thronged public places and incited to this deposition because they were hungry for money and positions under a regent who was their tool and their accomplice in vain did louis the sixteenth display those sentiments of paternal kindness which had hitherto availed him so little august third he sent a message to the assembly in which he said i will uphold national independence to my last breath personal dangers are nothing compared to public ones oh what are personal dangers to a king whom men are seeking to deprive of his people's love this is the real plague spot in my heart perhaps the people will some day know how dear their welfare is to me how many of my sorrows could be obliterated by the least evidence of a return to right feeling how did they respond to this conciliatory language after it had been read pétion the mayor of paris presented himself at the bar and read an address from the council general of the commune in which these words occur the chief of the executive power is the first link of the counter-revolutionary chain through a lingering forbearance we would have desired the power to ask you for the suspension of louis the sixteenth but to this the constitution is opposed louis the sixteenth incessantly invokes the constitution we invoke it in our turn and ask you for his deposition the next day the municipality distributed five thousand ball cartridges to the marseillais while refusing any to the national guards nevertheless the girondins still hesitated Roidet, vergniaud and chansonnet would have declared themselves satisfied if the three ministers belonging to their party had been reinstated and on july the twenty ninth they secretly dispatched a letter to the sovereign by thierry his valet de chambre in which they said that attached to the interests of the nation they would never separate them from those of the king except in so far as he separated them himself as to Barbaroux, like a true visionary he dreamed of i know not what rosewater insurrection they should not have entered the apartments of the palace he has said but merely blockaded them had this plan been followed the blood of frenchmen and swiss ignorant victims of court perfidy would not have been shed on the tenth of august the republic would have been founded without convulsions or massacres and we corroded by popular gangrene should not have become the horror of all nations the demagogues were not at all certain of success robespierre was to spend the tenth of august in the discreet darkness of a cellar danton was prudently to await the end of the combat before arming himself with a big sabre and marching at the head of the marseilles battalion as the hero of the day barbaroux says in his memoirs that on the first third and seventh of august marat implored him to take him to marseilles and that on the evening of the ninth he renewed this prayer more urgently than ever adding that he would disguise himself as a jockey in order to get away in spite of their many weaknesses the majority of the assembly were royalists and constitutionalists all the proof is that on august eighth in spite of the violent menaces of the galleries 
they decided by 406 against 244 votes that there was no occasion to impeach Lafayette, so abhorred by the Jacobins. This vote excited the wrath of the revolutionists to fury. The conservative deputies were insulted, pursued, and struck. Several of them barely escaped assassination. The sessions became stormier from day to day. Not only were the large galleries of the assembly overthrown by violent crowds, but the courtyards, the approaches, and the corridors were obstructed. Many sat or stood on the exterior entablatures of the high windows. The upper part of the hall where the Jacobins sat received many strangers, in spite of the often reiterated opposition of the right. Below this mountain sat the members of the centre, the Ventroux. There were not seats enough for them, and they were crowded up in a ridiculous manner. At the bottom of the hall, almost entirely deserted, were the forty-four members of the right. They were easily marked and counted by their future executioners, who threatened them by voice and gesture. Every day, the petitioners who were admitted to the honours of the session avoided the empty benches of the right and seated themselves with the mountain or the centre, where they crowded still more the already overcrowded deputies. The discussions were like formidable tempests. The effect produced by such a spectacle, says Count de Vaublanc in his memoirs, was still greater on those who entered the hall during one of those terrible moments. I received this impression several times myself, and it will never be effaced from my mind. I seek vainly for expression by which to describe it. Long afterwards, Monsieur de Co, then Minister of War, said to me, You made the profoundest impression on me which I ever received in my life. I was young at the time. I entered the galleries just as you were standing out against the furious shouts of a part of the deputies and the people in the galleries. Meanwhile, the end was approaching. Faithful royalists still proposed schemes of flight to Louis the Sixteenth. Bertrand de Mauville, who is so ill-disposed towards Madame de Stael, was concerning this. There was nobody, even to Madame de Stael, who either in the hope of being pardoned the injury her intrigues had done the king, or else through her continual need of intrigue, had not invented some plan of escape for his majesty. Louis XVI declined them all. He would owe nothing to Lafayette. He relied on the money he had given to Danton and other demagogues, and hoped that the insurrectionary bands would be repulsed by the royalists of the National Guard and the Swiss regiment. August 8th, in the evening, this fine regiment left its Coubevois barracks and arrived at the Tuileries at daybreak next morning. Under various idle pretexts, it had been deprived of its twelve pieces of artillery and also of three hundred men who had been given the commission true or false as may be, to watch over the transportation of corn in Normandy. Only 750 officers and soldiers remained, but all of them had said, we will let ourselves be killed to the last man, rather than fail in honour or betray the sanctity of our oaths. In company with a handful of noblemen, these were to be the last defenders of the throne. The fatal hour was approaching. The section of the Cordelier had decided that if the assembly had not pronounced the king's deposition by the evening of august ninth the drums should beat the general alarm at the stroke of midnight and the insurrection march against the tuileries the revolutionists were to carry out their plan and the swiss to keep their word end of chapter twenty six read for you by chiquito crasto birmingham alabama